This is the Serial at Midnight Podcast. Well, howdy and welcome to another episode of the Serial at Midnight Podcast. My name is Heath Holland and we are talking to Lee Gambit, the Australian powerhouse in this in this interview, this conversation that you're about to hear. Lee is a... Uh, why do I call him the Australian powerhouse? Because he's so passionate about the stuff that he cares about. And what he cares about is movies, pop culture history, TV history, the, stuff, the same stuff that we love. I think we talk about Lee like once a week here at Serial at Midnight because he is a prolific contributor to numerous physical media releases. I'm thinking of contributions just off the top of my head. Kino Lorber, Imprints, Umbrella Entertainment, Severin, Arrow. Uh, there's more than that. I mean, Lee is always involved in really high-level stuff. It's some of my favorite interviews that I've seen on disc. Well, so he does video essays. He does commentaries. He's moderated uh, conversations with different people interviewing some of the people that are involved in the, uh, the, the on-screen aspect of the movies themselves. But he's also, what we learned in this conversation, uh, is that he's also a disc, so a, a producer, a project producer, so he's hiring the team that gets these things together. As I personally start to do more commentary work on discs, I'm seeing how much work goes into this stuff behind the scenes. I think there's a view by some people that, you know, a fat cat in a suit in, in, in some executive boardroom looks at a computer and he goes, all right, we're going to release blah, 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 and he hits, a, he hits enter on his keyboard, and then three months later, out pops this release. But it is, I'm telling you guys, it takes so many people from the conceptualization of the project in the first place to the... Uh, the, the creation of special features, the menus, okaying the transfer in the first place, getting all that authored and put on a disc, then getting that disc replicated, then packaged. I mean, it's hundreds of hours of work in every single release that we have on our shelves. And so I have a an opportunity to talk to some of the people that make this stuff happen. And that's a real joy for me. You know, we talked to Bill Lustig from Blue Underground. We talked to Frank Tarzi. Uh, and one of the things that comes through in all of this is that there's a lot of love behind the scenes that uh, this is a layer of love for a lot of people, but Lee is not just a disc contributor. Lee is also an author. He's written numerous books and monographs about horror movies and about TV history and about all the stuff that we care about. He has also contributed articles to a variety of publications, including Fangoria. And now he enters into a new project, which is uh, sort of retail. He's bringing, uh, discs to the Australian, like importing discs for the Australian market so that Australians don't have to go through. It can be really hard for Australians to get all the really, I hear about it all the time, for Australians to get discs from other parts of the world. So we're going to hear about Cinemaniacs and his new passion project, which is taking uh, his love of movies to the next level and bringing the movies to his market. So this is not just for Australians. This is for everybody because we're talking about releases from multiple companies. We're talking about what goes on behind the scenes of releases. And uh, there's some really interesting stories here. So stories about Barbara Eden, uh, stories about uh, Carol Burnett. There's a really sad kind of heartbreaking story about Tim Curry. We all love Tim Curry. It's near the end of the interview. So, hey, if you're one of those people that just like ducks out kind of early, you got to stay to the end of the episode so you hear the sad story about Tim Curry. It's truly heartbreaking, but it makes me kind of love him even more, you know? Uh, so, without further ado, here is my conversation with Lee Gambin, Cinemaniac. Oh, man, I see Grizzly back there. Yes. I see the Wolfman. I see the Bride. Very good. 
what's under that? Is that Frankenstein under that, the under, under the bride is a um signed eight by ten of Janet Ann Gallo, who we lost recently. So she was one of the last sort of surviving of the Universal Monster movies. She plays a little girl in um uh, Ghost of Frankenstein. Uh, what else have I got there? I've got Rhoda, Patty McCormack, I think, is over there. There's a Robert England, there's a Sissy Spacek, there's a June Lockhart up there with um uh from She Wolf of London. Um, but yeah, there's a lot in the house. I know. So you were like you are a horror writer and and you do a lot of work in horror, but do you, it's not just horror though, right? You you're kind of all over the place. No, not at all. Yeah, all, all wide stretching. See, I so I grew up loving everything. Um, and I think I guess horror movies probably were the first things that really stood out to me as a kid as something that I sort of gravitated to quite naturally, but I loved everything. I, I still do, of course. So I'll do everything. Yeah. Like, how did you see this stuff? Cause I, you know, I come from a very American, obviously I'm, I'm in the United States. Was this stuff on television? Was it getting shown in theaters? Like, where was it? All everywhere. I think a lot of Americans get confused that Australians have such high um, intake of American content. It was always American content. There was definitely Australian content, but most 90% of it, 95% of it even was American. So I was lucky to sort of grow up during the 80s. So um, all my childhood through the 80s was amazing um, programming on television. So you'd have ma the major three networks would always air, you know, classic film content. And what was happening through that period was really good programming where it was a wide range of stuff. So you'd have like midday movies, which would range from like, you know, you know, Abbott and Costello to, you know, Shirley Temple films, to Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin films, et cetera, through to like the evening films, which would be like major blockbusters or, you know, obscure films. And then late night movie culture, which was huge, um, which would pack in all the horror films. Um, and as well as that, you have, you know, all the TV shows that we grew up with. So everything was sort of there. It was always accessible. And then also, obviously, the video boom. So there was like a lot going on in Australia as far as like, uh, you know, being exposed to lots of, American content um and as far as the cinemas went yeah absolutely and there were rep stuff going on I remember like in the early 80s and to mid 80s there was a lot of the Disney revivals so you got to see you know Dumbo and you know um, Snow White etc on the cin at the cinema which was awesome um and then also of course all the major releases were here so everything was very much akin to what was going on in the states what I try to tell people and I mean those of us who were there we know but for younger generations it can be kind of hard to wrap your brain around because now there's so much choice and there's so much, you know, everything is, well, everything everywhere is all, all at once is the joke, but like, it's every, like whatever you want to find, you can go down a rabbit hole for like months on this one thing. But when we were young, it was like bewitched reruns. And like, I always like to name check Mr. Ed. Cause that was a big one for me for, I was like, it's a horse and it talks. You know, I didn't know yeah. yet about like Francis the Talking Mule or anything like that. But then that that was living alongside with like Humphrey Bogart movies and Ninja Turtles cartoons and whatever, you know, Knight Rider and like all the stuff that was new and cool lived exactly next to older things because there was only a few channels. And so there was no great depth of choice, but everything kind of lived along. So you and I are of a generation where we have this appreciation for multiple levels of pop culture. Like we can go back to, you know, the thirties and the forties and get as much out of that as we got out of, you know, uh, some soap opera from the eighties or the nineties or something like that. And it's a really interesting thing to me because I feel like it shaped us in a way that is unique to our generation. 
And yeah. here's where I want to go with that. You've gone into like a his, historian um, field. Do you think it's because we were so served history as when we were younger? Absolutely. Um, but also I always feel like it's sort of innate in people. So, you know, you and I talk about our generation, but there'd be thousands upon thousands of people of our generation who don't give a shit about what we're talking about. Yeah. So I think it's about the individual. So you could have someone in their 20s right now who was born only, yeah, say, 25 years ago, who didn't grow up with the same, you know, programming on television, you know, exactly how you're saying, which is so perfect, the idea that, you know, Ninja Turtles cartoons will live alongside the Lauren Bacall film, whatever. Right. Um, and that's that beautiful magpie's nest of everything that matters in one hit or multiple hits. But that young person who's 22 today might be the same spirited, you know, person, mm -hmm. like the kindred spirits. So there's no kind of generational thing. I think I think it's individualistic more than anything, but absolutely, I think um, having that on our side to be able to go, okay, my reference point is I saw everything as a kid growing up and I had love for everything, whether it was sitcoms or horror films or Westerns or musicals or, you know, whatever, soap operas, whatever the hell it is, game shows, you know, like whatever it is, um, that does help fuel the sort of fire to be now in our early 40s and going, okay, I can actually make a career out of this and all this knowledge and all this watching, you know, it's not just misspent, you know, childhood and, and youth. <laughs> so yeah I, I guess that that definitely but I also think there's a lot to say about individualism and what people bring to the table so I think um it's unfortunate when people just don't care at all about film as a form of art and that's what kills me and you talked about like the idea of having to hunt for things and find things that's really important that's part of the actual uh, makeup of what we do I think that that hunger and that need to find things you know you, you stay up late as a kid you see one hammer film and you're like okay I need to see every single thing with that logo with that studio's name attached blah 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 whatever it might be so you kind of have to go and hunt for it whereas yeah you're right this whole accessibility thing is good in one way but it's also kind of like um, sometimes treated as throwaway so it's like oh you know I'll just find it and download it and not even watch the whole thing. Like that kind of attitude kills me. And there's people who are like that. So I think they're very different to us. But um, I think the beauty of now, and thank God, is the um, advent of home media being incredibly all-encompassing. So, and I mean, look behind you, that is just, that's heaven to me. So this idea of um, releasing a film on a boutique label, through a boutique label and packing it with all these features which gives the whole experience in one hit, whether it's, you know, um, production history stuff, um, you know, academic writing and text, you know, um, interviews and archive stuff, whatever it is on one release that actually sort of helps that film, well, does, it keeps the film alive forever. And it gives it, it's sort of, it's just deserves as something as a, as a form of art, um, rather than just having it, you know, air on something and then it disappears. I think that's a tragedy, you know, to, to yeah. lose stuff. But yeah, so I think that's really important. But yeah, absolutely. I think we were lucky. We were blessed to have that. And when you speak to people who didn't have that, they're kind of like thrown by it. But I also think it's it's definitely individualistic. I think it's cultural as well. I think it depends on environment as well, funnily enough. Like I have this joke where like rich kids don't understand me. 
because a lot of rich kids never grew up watching soap operas or sitcoms or movies. They just didn't. And it's like, I remember that distinction being very clear to me as a kid or a teenager, early teens, when I went to my first, um, like, rally. It was like an animal rights rally. And I was like, you know, 13 or something. And I was wearing a Laverne and Shirley pin and an exorcist pin. And someone comes up and they go, what's that? And I'm like, oh, you know, (laughs) one of my favourite shows and one of my favourite movies. And they're like, oh, yeah, yuck. Don't, I don't care about TV or films. I was like, oh, okay, so you're not my people. Even though you're at the same thing, but you're not my people. And it was that whole middle class kind of sensibility of that snobbery um, that people had, this kind of snobbery towards people who cared about pop culture or cared about monster movies or, you know, MGM musicals or, you know, westerns or serials or, you know, Mr. Ed. And there's that thing where it's kind of like a, a taste factor. It's like, oh, you know, we're, we're people who grew up going to the theatre. And it's like, well, whatever, like, I'd rather watch Mr. Ed. So it's kind of, so it's that thing as well, I feel. So there's a lot going on. And, you know, people like Pat Allinger and, I, and myself talk about this a lot because it's kind of, um, there's a distinction between what's highbrow and what's lowbrow. And even though, a lot of the stuff we love um, is considered possibly highbrow. We sort of don't see it in that sense. So we will say, you know, some, I don't know, whatever. A Fellini film, which to me, is um, just as important or just as um, the same as some made-for-TV movie from CBS. Like, I feel like there, there's no distinction. However, there is that from people who just don't get what we're, where we're coming from. So I think that is another thing. So the taste-making thing and that snobbery, um, but also um, not being gatekeepers as well. That's a big deal as well for me. So it's like everyone should have access to everything. Everyone everyone should be able to see everything and everyone should be, you know, um, welcomed and included because I think that's really tragic when people have this kind of, oh, no, you know, I'm the gatekeeper of this genre or this subgenre or whatever, or this period of film. It's like, no, nah, you're not. Like, it's for everyone. So, yeah, that's the beauty of having home media where, it can be shared. I'm really interested in the idea of gatekeeping. And we see this, you know, you talk about like the the snobbery of academia. I, I see that. Listen, if I talk about a film noir on my channel, uh, someone's mm. going to be like, that's not a film noir. Let me let me tell you what. Oh. And they'll start naming the books and they start naming like, well, <laughs> the French philosopher, you know, told, told us in 1962 that I'm like, oh. OK, but this is popular entertainment. This is these movies were meant to be watched. They were meant to be enjoyed by everybody, not by the elite, but by everybody. And yep. you and you mentioned Kat Ellinger, she, uh, she as well. You guys take lofty, serious looks. Uh, lofty is not the right word. You take serious looks at things that have been considered, you know, ephemeral, I guess. And um, it seems like there's a changing of the guard. I'm seeing less of the, I don't know if I'm seeing less, but I'm seeing, you know, the younger generation, our generation coming up and maybe in some cases challenging the authority as we've known it for, you know, the last 20, 30 years that say, you know, but people have written books and, and written about this stuff. And now there's an audio commentary that does the exact same thing and is reaching more people and is approachable. Could you just talk to me a little bit more about that? Is this something consciously that you're doing, that you're a part of? It sounds like it is maybe, or maybe it's just who you are. I don't know. We just, uh, but see, I'm all for the old guard as well. Like I love the old guard and I don't even know how long the old guard is considered the old guard, like how long in history. You know, if you look at my book collection, I've got all those 
wonderful seminal classic books, you know, that established a lot of stuff. Because I remember like, I, there was an interview I was um, reading recently where they were talking about like, say for instance, uh, representation in cinema and when that sort of started to become a conversation. And they, they referenced uh, Molly Haskell's um, from reference to rape, the treatment of women in films, which is a mass, master work. It's an amazing book. And how that kind of set up to sort of spearhead things like Donald Bogle's book and Vito Russo and all these kind of books that talked about black representation or Latino representation or um, queer representation, blah, blah, blah. And her book is to me like, you know, a Bible, like I'll always go back to those things, those texts, you know, whether it's, you know, Sutherland Closet or Tom's Coons, Mammy's Bucks, etc. All those seminal classic texts are really important. And I think it's a shame if people kind of ignore them or neglect them. Um, you know, I just recently did a commentary track, um, a Western called Tomahawk, and I was looking up, um, refer referring to John Mallon's book, uh, Big Bad Wolves, which is about masculinity in, in films, the classic era. And like her writing is amazing. I don't want people to forget these books, these classic books. So to answer your question, those are sort of texts that have been around forever, like, you know, and earlier than the 70s, like we're going way back. Um, and then you've got, I guess, what's happening, say, in the 90s, where people start to have more of a kind of inclination to go towards academia and certain genres suddenly finally get recognized as serious texts to study etc um mm. and i think that's where you kind of get those voices um and that's that's to me they're just as important as this new wave of people and also the new wave how new is it you know like i feel like you know someone like cat and myself we've done it for years like it's not like we're suddenly new like we started with zines. We started with doing our own thing. Okay, so but have always you always been in a position of power to influence what's the art itself, to to add and contribute to the art itself? How long have you been there? Oh, right. Well, I, I don't think that. Thank you for the compliment, but I don't think myself in a position of power. But I feel like, but definitely, as, yeah, as far as like actively being on releases, like, yeah, um, not that long. That's totally true. Yeah, so not that long at all. Maybe seven years nearly. I don't know, eight years. So, yeah, you're right. Um, but, yeah, you're right. And then before that was obviously Fangoria and then writing books. But it was always, a for me, it was always a building up to this kind of work, right? And then now it's kind of splintering off into different directions and now being doing producing that's the best. So that's like, you know, a pinnacle where you can go, okay, I'm going to curate a whole release. And that, that is thrilling. That's awesome. Because what's more exciting to me is giving jobs to others. Like it really is, um, you know, uh, so it's kind of like, you know, here's my pool to play in and thank you. Um, you know, head of company Lee, here you are as a producer. So at the moment I can't mention the title, but I'm doing something for Arrow and it's, amazing it's thrilling like it's so exciting like I, I can't wait to announce it but it's like curation producing working within budgets and then hiring people and going you'd be perfect for this you'd be good for this blah 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 and so that kind of thing is that's that's I reckon that's when you talk about power that's where I like that's my power I like to be able to help others and support others uh, so it's kind of like you know here's my pool to play in and thank you um you know head of company lee here you are as a producer so at the moment i can't mention the title but i'm doing something for arrow and it's amazing it's thrilling like it's so exciting like i, I can't wait to announce it but it's like curation 
producing, working within budgets, and then hiring people and going, you'd be perfect for this. You'd be good for this, blah, blah, blah. But also people who are very, very good at um, research and very, very good at archive and very good at researching um, production history. Those people need to be lauded because that's awesome. And to take the time out to do all that, you know, not for, for a lot of critics, a lot of them tend to like their own voice and that's fine. But it's nice to have a combo. It's nice to have people who go, okay, I'm going to actually go and talk to this 84-year-old person who was a stuntman on this Western because that's important. It really is. I, I would like you to talk to me about the importance of research and how what your research process is because that, you know, I... I I know some people think that research is going to Wikipedia or the IMDb trivia section. And I actually, there's one commentary that I, I won't name. Um, the dude is reading IMDb trivia points, like verbatim, <laughs> reading them, but like, didn't even change the words or put them in. So wow. I was like, ooh. Um, and when I get to talk to people like you, I'm like, okay, what is your research process? What is the importance of digging into actual you know documents and going yeah well give me a title give me a title that i've worked on and i'll be able to maybe even make it more specific okay let's do the brass bottle because i'm so jealous that you got to talk to <laughs> yeah 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 so a lot of that came from her a lot of that came from her and there was um this really cool archive that was um this journal that was talking about like fantasy movies of that period and there was nice stuff on that in there um, and a lot of it was me watching a lot of those films that came out at the same time that was sort of churned out quite quickly that had that kind of, you know, I guess, Sultan, you know, yeah. that kind of Middle Eastern sensibility um, about them in comedy form, form. But there was this incredible journal, which I have to go back and figure out who the contributors were, but there was a great journal that talked about that and why these films were popular. And also researching TV history. So going into the TV archives and looking at the origins of Genie which is supposed to come from this film, but Barbara Eden actually in the interview said it never did. And then it's like, wow, this is really interesting, good con conflicting forms of opinion. And then researching, you know, Burl Ives and like, you know, biographies and, you know, journal uh, texts and people who worked with him. And then sort of branching out there and you form this sort of weave this thing. And so that sort of is the production history to that. And then, yeah, going deep into sort of like looking as, as far as you can get with certain things. There's a lot of these movies that came out um, very quickly and, and churned out very quickly. Don't have much in regards to archival reports. There might be an article here and there. You might get a variety article. You might get like a, a difference in casting um piece that was like oh this person is lined up for this movie and then they don't they're not but then all of that came to the point of me going okay here's what I've got and I'll just use and I'll work that but then also here's my um analysis of the film which is talking about the idea of the sort of wave of these movies of this period where it was always this urban professional who was muddled and and you know on the cusp of becoming a success but needs that extra push and he gets the help from a genie or a you know a talking mule or whatever it is and there was this wave of these movies so that was something that I like to bring to the fold and then of course ultimately it was talking to Barbara Eden and so she filled in all the production history gaps and I had to ask her about other things because it's like you know this is uh, the queen and we need to talk to her about everything and she was just divine. So she talked about, you know, uh, Wonderful World of Brothers Grimm. She talked about um, Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. She talked about, of course, Jeannie. 
Um, I talked to her about her made-for-TV horror stuff, um, like Howling in the Woods and A Stranger Within. So all this stuff, and she was just wonderful. So she had all these stories and anecdotes about Tony Randall, about Burl Ives. And what was fascinating was I reread her book, um, her biography from, her autobiography from some years ago, yeah. and read up on stuff about the brass bottle and her story. Her stories had changed, like, because that book's full on. Like, she, she, yeah. you know, she dishes and it's great. But this he talks time, in that book about Burl, like walking by Burl Ives' dressing room, I think it was. He's like, hey, come here, little girl. And she, in the book, yeah. I was like, was he going to like attack her? But then in the commentary, it was a little bit more. She was like, he was just joking or something like that. I was like, <laughs> all these years, I was like, wait, was Burl Ives a predator? But the commentary <laughs> kind of clears it up, right? Yeah. I know. So that was, thought, I was like, oh, I. Okay, and I didn't want to re-question that. Like, I was like, no, that's your story. That's cool. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, she was awesome. That was really beautiful. Um, and it was, you know, that's like you were saying earlier, like growing up with these shows, that's a big, big deal. So that's a tricky thing as well. Like, you know, the serious critic, serious journalist, film historian, blah, 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 compared to the kid growing up with, you know, Jeannie, like the fan. So I was like, oh, you know, and you and you get all weird, but then you get over it. I remember when I worked on Annie, the Blu-ray release of Annie, and, like, as soon as Carol Burnett picked up the phone, I was like, okay, I can't deal with this. And then she put me at ease in one second, and it was just stunning. So we talked for, like, two hours on the phone, and she was just amazing and had all these great stories, and, you know, and it was just putting people at ease. These are people who are also, you know, salt of the earth, grounded, working-class people who became movie stars or tv stars and it's still there all their kind of really earthy earthy qualities are still there so whenever anyone goes oh hollywood people go yeah no nah, they're actually the best people and i've done i've done journalistic sort of stuff and interviews and stuff with people with stars and you know creatives etc for longer than i've worked in home media like you know so this is going on about 20 odd years now and I've never had bad experience. I think they've all just, I mean, maybe there's two people I could, that come to mind, but that's okay. It's enough. That's another story. That's, you know, but that's, um, that's other than that, that, that's like, you know, dozens upon dozens upon dozens upon dozens of people that I've spoken to who are all beautiful, really grounded, really down to earth. So yeah, you know, that was a big coup that Annie released. That was awesome. So it was Carol Burnett, Tim, uh, Tim, Tim Curry, um, who was amazing and like, you know, had these great stories and, uh you know he's had you know a lot of health issues but he got through the interview beautifully and his stories were amazing and his memory was so sharp and he was funny really funny and Anne Ryan King who sadly passed away like a week after talking to her um you know and that was that was awesome to work on that release but yeah all these things were part of like your job to reach out I just think I want to encourage people to do that I'm like just talk to people because they're willing to talk and they worked on the freaking film. Yeah. So, yeah, same as with my books, like the monographs. I'm like, I want to get everyone involved. If I'm doing a book on Cujo, I'm not going to just stop at like D. Wallace and the and Lewis. I'm going to do everyone. So that kind of thing is really important to me. Do you, because we should talk about your books. Do you, I think I know the answer. Do you prefer writing about film or the commentary work, the production work, do you prefer, is there one that feels more comfortable to you or is it just different, different moods for different, you know, different. Uh, different oh, like diff from doing a Blu-ray release to a book. Yeah. A book's going to be a very different process because you're going to be sitting. Just go forever. They just take so long. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
But in saying that also, commentary work is a lot of work. Like it's not just, oh yeah, like it's a lot of work. So I think that's something that people need to realise because it is, it's, you know, and you and you have to churn them out fast. Like I love Kino Lorber because Kino Lorber is just like, here's your deadline, go. And, like, oh, and you just work and it's awesome. So when you submit that invoice and you submit that piece, you just, ah, oh, done. You know, like it's just that I love that. I love the deadline thing. I think I I work better with a deadline. So books don't have a deadline usually. Yeah. Sometimes they might, but generally they don't. So you could just go on for years and it's like, ah, oh, and you go back to it. So there's kind of a casualness to a book, um, but with a release that has a deadline and needs to come to the shelf at this certain time, that's awesome because you just go into high, high, um, you know, you just work hard. And you work hard for like two to three weeks and then you just get this product. And I think that's exciting. It's a labor of love is what it is. And if you didn't yeah. have the passion that you have for the things that you do, this would be a whole different thing. It would be mm. drudgery, but you love it, right? Yeah, yeah. of course. Well, and that's why <laughs> we should talk about how you're kind of moving into like a retail role too, because that's that seems daunting to me. But tell me a little bit about Cinemaniacs and your current passion project. So this is the st a sticker we got made up, which is stunning. So that's the there you go. But uh, Cinemaniacs is so it's been around for a while now. I think we're on to ten years. But Cinemaniacs is a rep screening um, group. So it's I I program um, uh, monthly screenings, and uh, what I do with them is kind of add the features that you probably get on a release. So I'll have a guest speaker talk about the film, or I'll have uh, people who involved with the movies do video pieces for the release for the screening. Anyway, that started there and it's been going strong for a while. And now we've branched into home media distribution. So here in Australia, it's really tricky at times for people to buy US and UK Blu-rays and DVDs and 4Ks. So we have got now a group called cinemaniacshomemedia.com.au, um, which is our website. And people can now order stuff and they get them delivered and it's really nice prices. And again, it's sort of serving film community and we can get pretty much anything that's available. Um, so we've got titles from Kino Lorba, we've got titles from Arrow, we've got titles from Severin, uh, Vinegar Syndrome, um, Shout Factory, uh, Criterion, Warner Archives, whatever it is. And we basically, yeah, just do an online service and there's an option. It's all Australia and New Zealand wide. Um, for Melbourne folk, they have the option of like picking it up from us physically. So that's another thing they save on the flat fee rate of shipping. But yeah, no, it's good. It's good. And it's also because there's only a couple of retailers that still do Blu-rays on shelves. There's only really I can think of only one in Melbourne City. Um, and then there's other uh, groups that are doing it, which is fantastic. High five to them. But yeah, we've started our own and we sort of want to reach out to everyone. And what's beautiful, what I've found is there's a lot of people who are buying home media here who are doing all um, options. So they're spreading their love everywhere, which is so good. So they'll buy from, um, you know, one company or one group doing something and then they'll buy from us and they'll go to a store. So it's kind of cool. There's no sort of like, you know, tunnel focus on one group which is fine as well if people want to do that but yeah so we're doing that and it's 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 working out quite good um and just needs to build and throw you know get itself out there and that's something where me and the team are sort of working on so yeah it's um 
that's happening. So yeah, get on board. And there's like a Facebook page, etc. Cinemaniacs, um, home media stuff. So yeah, you'll be able to order in Australia, which is nice. I'll put a link in the description of this so people can just click straight through and uh, check it all out. You know, what's funny to me is that Americans have so much access to art and to discs and to the kind of stuff that we're talking about here. And anytime they have to import something, I hear about it. Like, I mean, they are so butthurt that they have to import something or like, Hey, I ordered from, uh, well, first of all, there's the money, there's the conversion, the currency conversion. That's an issue for some people, but like, it is like, it is like, it's an, a huge, huge problem for some people. And I'm like, guys, Australians in particular are having to import so much. And like, it, it helps to put things in perspective is what it does. Because I'm like, man, we are so blessed here. We have access. Like we can just order it from like a, a bazillion different retailers, but not you guys. Yeah. And so it's very cool what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's good. And it's like, people kind of go, oh shit, you know, I forgot that I needed this film or this is coming up. And it goes from like hardcore collectors who are like, you know, on it. They're like, oh, the 4K, this is coming out. I need it. You know, from that to, you know, a person in their 70s who remembers seeing some, you know, fantastic MGM musical. And they're like, I need to get, I need to see that. And I can't find it. And we go, here you go. You know, and I love that. Like I want to, I remember working at a um, DVD store and they were my favorite customers, the people over a certain age who have done all their child rearing. They just want to relax and enjoy life and revisit all these beautiful classic films that they grew up with or have fondness for. And it was really lovely. It was really satisfying to um, help find them for them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I have two questions left. I want to be very, very respectful of your time. So I have two questions. All right. I hope I've I've given you stuff. That's great. No, you're the kind of person that like, we could just do this for hours. I think like we could just sit and talk about, you know, our favorite releases and our favorite movies and like, Hey, did you see like, like to Barbara Eden, like, Hey, how about ride the wild surf? Right. Like we could just, yeah, um, but okay. So as you enter like distribution, where do you see, the market, the physical media market, discs is you're producing discs five years from now, 10 years from now. So there's so much worry and so much fear that I see in the comments of my videos and things like that. Where do you see it down the road? Uh, well, I, I hope it lives forever because, yeah, um, it's important for people in my field to have work so we can eat and pay rent. Um, but also, I think that fear has been around for a while, and it's unwarranted. I think it's. I think they're not going anywhere. I think when you see like the amount of people buying, when you see the amount of films being put out, when you see companies getting new deals with studios and things coming out, also I think people are losing interest in streaming services. What's on them? Like seriously, um, you know, I had access to four of them. Like, there's nothing on here, and also watching it from you know the glitches and oh my god no nah, i can't do and also things disappearing I, I remember picking them up just for a few documentaries and like just put them on disc please and some of the docs have gone to disc thank god um but you know it's just i think people are losing faith in those i think people who are caring about film and preserving film and having films to have will start to eventually go to discs again i've i've heard people going oh my god i can't believe i've gotten rid of all these films i used to have that's like i can't see these films anymore it's like well don't get rid of your discs so i don't think it's going anywhere i really don't and also like the the boom in vinyl 
um, is matched now with the boom in, again, the Blu-ray and DVD stuff. Uh, and just the fact of the matter that so much stuff is getting released, you know, and like people, you know, for me as well, it's like, oh my God, you know, I've got this already on a DVD. It looks fine enough, but now do I need the Blu-ray? Yes. You know, if I can afford it, of course. So there's people who are just buy everything you know and I think that's something I think it's I think it's fine and I think with the additions of stuff on these releases <clears throat> I think that will just keep going and yeah a lot of it is kind of specialty and a lot of it is boutique buying but I think maybe that's enough and um I think it's interesting when I see say for instance you know a film title gets a release and then a month later another company puts the same film out and that that customer buys both so if that says something about things going anywhere, I think it's here to stay. I think it's here to stay. Last question. Um, do you have a favorite memory or interaction in your time as a, you know, whatever you would, I, 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 I like the word historian, but some people kind of bristle at the word historian, but I think we need historians. Um, do you have a favorite memory, a favorite experience, a favorite interview? Is, is it Barbara Eden? You know, where like just what sticks out when oh. I say like, Hey, what's the, what's the, what's the top of the mountain for you? I don't know. Ah, oh, like yeah, it doesn't like happen Carol yet. <laughs> people like Carol Burnett, people like Barbara Eden, people like Norman Jewison. Like, there's a lot. There's so many. Um, what I actually really like is when um, uh, you're researching one thing and it leads to other things, and the discovery of certain things or learning about certain um, different sort of connections to things or. I don't know, it's really interesting. So basically, like, there'd be an example where I was working on um, the 70s musicals book and I was gearing up towards the Cujo book. And um, the Barry um, Pearl, who was um, duty in Greece, I was talking to him, he's wonderful. He was saying, oh, if you're going to work on the Cujo book, I know Cujo. And I go, what, what do you mean? He goes, I'm friends with Cujo. And I go, okay, what does that mean? And he goes, so the guy that played Cujo, in the dog suit was a, an actor and a stuntman and a dancer named Gary Morgan. And Gary Morgan was in Pete's Dragon with Jeff Conaway, who was in Greece. So I was like, oh my God. So I like this connection there. So I got through to talking to this guy who played a dog via Greece. So that kind of thing is just awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I think that kind of thing where you kind of go, wow, like these kind of cool connective tissues to things that lead you to certain things and how everything during this period of Hollywood say from like the mid seventies to the mid eighties seems to be kind of intertwined, intertwined because they were all working yeah. and they were all together, they were all mates. So that kind of thing, you know, like um, hearing DD Khan talk about Raggedy Ann, like that was beautiful. Like there's so much, it just goes on. Um, you know, Twiggy, um, I've interviewed a lot of people and, you know, hearing um, intense stories, like really kind of full on, stories like um Leslie Ann Downs shared one which was really full on um but yeah like so like all these kind of things that sort of I don't know surprise you so rather than just like oh you know it was a really good shoot there's people who just have these great stories and also the humility of people like the humble like John Carpenter like how humble he is like you know I he talked to me first off for Elvis and that he was really excited to talk about Elvis because no one talks to him about Elvis and so that was really cool. And he was as lovely and charming as ever. And then when I got in for Christine, it was like, you know, oh yeah, you know, like just, you know, he made this perfect film and just that sort of humble 
you know, it's just really cool. And just like hearing people talk about working with certain people. Um, but yeah, all that stuff, interview stuff's really exciting. It's always really cool, fun. And sometimes where you, uh, I've started to realize I can go off script. So now it's this kind of conversational thing, which is really fun. And also, um, like for instance, when I did the ants release for Kino Lorba, I was like, this really needs as many people who are involved to be on this disc, just because it'd be really interesting to hear them talking about making a made for TV eco horror film from their perspective as actors or whatever. And that was really awesome. And then I thought, you know what? The producer on this was Alan Landsberg. His daughter is Valerie Landsberg, who I am sure you love as well. We grew up with her on Fame. I'm like, I need to talk to her about her dad and her dad's work. And she had the best stories. If you've ever heard that interview, it's insane. Like she has like, because she was on set with him a lot as a teenager and she worked for him, but she had great stories. So it's also these people associated with other people who also have their own amazing careers, but um, their perspective, it's kind, of, it's, kind of, it's kind of like a distanced perspective. Like when Teresa Ann Miller talks about her dad, Carl Miller, the animal trainer, she's an animal trainer herself, but her stories about her dad working with the St. Bernards on Cujo was just, it's, it's beautiful because it's also someone's child talking about their parents' work who are no longer with us. So I don't know, there's all that stuff which is really moving. I'll tell you something that's, Okay, so I think I mentioned it on uh, a post, but um, when I interviewed Tim Curry for Annie, he had no idea that Albert Finney had died. And I, I feel like, because I was looking up the sort of dates, and I feel like that's when um, uh, Tim Curry suffered one of his um, strokes, poor guy. And he probably just didn't know or realise. And when I was talking about Albert Finney, he was talking about how he was obsessed with Albert Finney and used to hitchhike to go and see him in England on stage. And then he said Albert Finney had a, a record, a, a kind of like a, a yeah, a, a record with songs. Um, and he goes, oh, you know, he's made a joke saying, oh, you know, I don't know how good that would be, blah, blah, blah. And he started laughing. And he goes, oh, no, he's going to hear this, isn't he? And I had to tell him, no, he won't. He's no longer with us. And that, that was horrible. So for like at least three or four minutes, he started sobbing and he was upset. And I go, oh God, like, you know, having to sell bad news, which is already like four or five years old. I don't know when Albert Finney passed away. It was a few years ago. But just to have that, um, that kind of thing was really, you know, that's full on. Um, and also something that's really interesting is kind of like bringing into, bringing up your own kind of critical analysis on, on stuff to people who worked on the films and them kind of um, appreciating it or finding it interesting. I think that's cool. And that's a little bit of a kind of, you know, that probably sounds a bit wanky, but it is kind of kind of cool when you kind of go, oh, you know, I read this into this and the director's like, oh, okay. And they probably don't at all, but they acknowledge that you do. Um, what else? There's all this stuff. Like there's so much. Um, and also what happens is the friendships that come from it, which is really nice. Um, you know, there's been people who I miss dearly, like Sandra Locke. Um, you know, I uh, kept in touch with her for ages and we'd email all the time, have phone conversations. Um, uh, Bill Paxton, you know, when they pass away, it sort of does, yeah, it's like losing the person you know, you know, because, you know, he was awesome, Bill Paxton. I spoke to him about Carrie because um, he was um, Jack Fisk's right-hand man. He does a lot of art direction in that film. And... He and I talked and we'd call each other just to talk shit about movies, like just talk about movies. And that was really nice. And that happened for, you know, over a couple of months. And then, yeah, so when they go, it's really sad. But yeah, so there's all that kind of thing, that kind of connection and 
checking in on people and yeah like just recently it was Piper Laurie's Laurie's birthday and I was like happy birthday and she was thankful so it's like that kind of thing where you kind of have that built that building foundation of you know getting to know these people and I, there was a really beautiful I'm sure you saw it done the rounds there's a video interview with um Shelley Duvall and the young woman that interviews her well there's a young guy the guy and the girl and the girl says to her the woman says to her um uh, you you people are people that we carry with us forever and that's the truth of it I think I think when people don't understand that when people go oh you know they're just movie stars nah they're a human people a lot of them are struggling they're not all wealthy you know that's a big myth um they're always you know finding that next gig or you know living off you know very little but also, regardless of all that, they are people that we've had in our lives forever because we've watched them forever. So we carry them with us. And so that's really important to sort of acknowledge. And I think, you know, people like myself in, in my field and you as well doing what you do, it's really important because what we end up doing is championing their work forever. And in doing that, it sort of like brings them to the attention forever where they should be regarded as important as you know whoever is contemporary now um if not more so you know these people paved the way so you know um you know you wouldn't have a margot robbie if you didn't have olivia newton john let's just put it that way you know olivia newton john being in greece is a massive deal like and especially for us people with our accent hearing that accent in a film loaded with americans is a big deal um so it's kind of like you know what she did anyway we lost her as well so anyway but yeah I think that's that's important I think we all need to have that respect and reverence for film as art and not just throw away not just as a streaming thing where you go oh I'm just gonna binge and then tune out I find that really distasteful I just can't deal with it you know I get guilty if I've got a movie on, on and I'm working and it's just a background thing I'm like oh my god that's but it's like that's just my black comfort blanket but yeah your passion comes through in everything that you do where should people tell people where they can find you where are you uh on the internet and uh <laughs> you know websites all that jazz sure I just think the Cinemaniacs thing eat for yeah for more local um but yeah I don't know just hook, hook, hook me up I don't know. You can find me on releases. Keep, keep, keep getting these Blu-rays. How many do you, are you keeping a tally of how many you've done? Um, I've got a list, but the list keeps changing. But yeah, I, as far as commentaries, I'm not sure. But I've done a lot other things. I love video essays. I love doing video essays. Like they're like so much fun to do. Uh, I love commentary. I love it all. I love writing essays. Like, booklet essays I haven't done one of them for a long time I did one recently actually for uh, a primetime panic volume two which is going to be fantastic and I also did one on a favorite horror film of all of ours in the mid-70s which is coming out soon from a company um it's gonna and Kat Allinger curated the whole booklet and there's like I think I don't know 30 essays in this thing it's gonna be huge but um I miss doing those I yeah so hire me for writing please um, but yeah, I, I don't know, lots, which is freaking awesome. But yeah, I think like my first commentary gig was for Umbrella. And Umbrella, again, I'm sorry, I'm missing out on talking about some local companies, like Imprint, of course, do magnificent work. Josh is doing amazing work with that company. And there's so many great people involved with those releases. 
But Umbrella are doing beautiful stuff at the moment. And Ben Halwig, I've got to give a shout out to him because he's curating some stunning stuff. So I just did um, the Burt Reynolds box set. I did a video essay for Best of the Whole House in Texas. And I did um, a video essay on sex work and musicals. So I go right back from, I think, the 20s to about maybe the early 2000s. Um, and that was on there. But also I did a video essay for Wrong Turn. I did one on rural horror or hillbilly horror. Um, but they're doing amazing work as well. And my first gig was with them and I did the audio commentary for Orca. And so that was my first commentary. I'm sure it was. And that's repurposed, I think. Scream Factory put it on their release. But yeah, that was my first one. And, you know, I remember doing that and being really kind of self-conscious and stuff. <laughs> but, you know, and I still kind of am. But yeah, the that's just moved on. So yeah, the, a lot. And it's good. Keep them coming. <laughs> But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but also as far as like my role on releases, does it always just be commentaries or video essays? It could be producing a featurette, like I've done stuff for Severin, for instance, or had archival stuff that I've had organized before and then it's been used or sold to a company. For instance, um, Severin's um, Boys Next Door. So we screened that and we had, I had Penelope Spheris and Maxwell Caulfield do a video interview. And so Kayla um, Janice, who's amazing as well, she reused that and put that on the disc for Voice Next Door for Severin and, you know, superb. So, yeah, there's a lot. Lee Gambin, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been a blast. Awesome. Thank you for having me. All right. We are back in the recording studio the the physical media collection room uh and i want to i'm going to do something that's kind of topical here we'll see how this goes because i don't want to like this is kind of going to maybe it's going to age this episode this is topical news and we'll see how it goes so recently uh as i'm recording this video with like within the last day it has been announced that mill creek entertainment has entered into a multi-year deal with disney to distribute uh blu-ray dvds and blu-rays and the press release is a little vague. And so uh, one of these, I reported on this everywhere that I could, on YouTube, on the Twitter, you know, the Twitter machine, the tweet machine, the uh, Facebook, every Instagram, everywhere. Everywhere that I'm on, I reported on this. But like as the day went on, uh, more details started to emerge. And I actually, like I was able to talk to some people behind the scenes and get some more information. And what this comes down to is... Um, this is a deal for things that have already been released that have gone out of print. And I saw disappointment from some people. Like it was, it was weird because it was like this really like, Oh, we're going to get, and then name really obscure project. Like we're finally going to get, you know, some small TV show from 1982 on 4k or something like that. And then it was like crestfallen, right? It's like, Oh, you could hear the size. You could hear the, uh, the deflation of the audience. But I think this is great news and I'm super excited about it because, um, one of my, you know, let's start here. A few years ago, when Disney was first circling 20th Century Fox, uh, there was a lot of talk about, like, well, does this mean Deadpool is going to be part of the MCU? And now we can have Wolverine as part of the MCU? Like, that's all anybody wanted to talk about. And I made a video, it's here on the channel, about how this is not great, how Disney buying Fox takes Fox movies off the table, it's going to put them in a vault, Nobody cared. It's not even like they were like, nah, Heath. Just nobody watched that video. It's one of the least watched videos in the history of this channel. Um, 
it was just met with silence. And I am sad to say that that was validated over the next few years because Disney did buy Fox and promptly let lots of movies go out of print on home media. And so, no, not like Alien, you know, not Predator movies or anything like that. The big mainstream, the movies your grandma knows, they're still in print. But what did go out of print is like all the catalog titles. So you know I'm a big fan of film noir. There was a big line of Fox film noir DVD titles. A lot of the, well, all of those went out of print. Some of them got licensed to a few other companies. But I mean, it was like 5%. Uh, Sinatra worked at Fox for a while. He, there was a box set of Sinatra films. After the purchase, I'm like I'm watching these things go away. I'm watching like... Hey, today this is on Amazon. And then like the next day it's not on Amazon anymore. And the used price is like $200. I was like, Oh no, (laughs) this is how it happens. Uh, and so I started to just buy all this stuff because I was worried that it was just never going to come back. And so, uh, Hey, Marilyn Monroe movies. It's it's a weird to think that Marilyn Monroe movies are out of print and uh, fetching really high, um, secondhand prices. So this is great news because one it keeps things off the secondhand market, which is it, those high, they want to be called resellers. I tend to think of them as scalpers. Anybody that buys low and sells high based on a scarcity model, um, that's not good for you and me. That's only good for them. And I don't think that that really benefits us. I've talked about this before on the channel. Like if you, this is not, you know, this is not a, a, a video about reselling, but if you do that, that's on you, right? That's not good for the community as a whole. That's only good for you. So more discs back in print is good for everybody. And so, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, what does this really mean? Does this mean we're going to get, you know, Phineas and Ferb on 4K? No, it does not. This is a deal to bring pre-existing titles back in print as they were, right? So we noticed Mill Creek does a lot of distribution with Universal, uh, where they'll partner with Universal to like Universal sometimes has these releases in print, but then Mill Creek will pick it up and it's usually the same transfer. Maybe they'll put a slipcase over it or something. And that goes to a retail store. Mill Creek has a huge retail infrastructure. Now, not everybody has to love Mill Creek. I understand they have like, they've done some great things. They've done some things that were not so great. I will say this. A lot of times it's the things that aren't so great. Like there's the I dream of genie situation, right? The, and there's a whole video about it. For instance, one of the episodes of I Dream of Genie has for like a minute and a half. It's got this noise like, eh, just like a minute and a half of buzzing in one of the episodes. Well, Mill Creek didn't do that. Mill Creek took what was given to them by the parent studio, which in that case was Sony, and they put it on a disc. Um, they're not making transfers. They're not making you know, they're not restoring anything. They're a licensing company. So Mill Creek licenses from the parent studios. They take what they're given and they put that on a disc and they release that. When something like that happens, I assume they go to Sony. They're like, hey, there's a buzzing noise on this. At which point I imagine Sony said, oh, that's all we have. You notice that season with, I think it was season four or maybe even season five. It's not on streaming. So what's up with that? Um, so anyway, a lot of the things that people blame Mill Creek for are problems that come from the parent, the, the studios that they get their stuff from. There are some encoding issues from time to time with Mill Creek Entertainment. I'll be the first to admit it. However, here's what we got to take into account. Mill Creek Entertainment has a huge retail infrastructure. They are a part of Alliance Entertainment, which is this massive publicly, tra- publicly traded company that has 
there you you have bought from companies that you did not think were associated with Mill Creek Entertainment, but they were Alliance Entertainment companies. If you've bought vinyl online, if you've bought collectibles online, if you've bought movies from a website that uh, wasn't Amazon or Best Buy or Target or Walmart, you've probably bought from Alliance Entertainment. They are a massive uh, distribution giant, and this deal with Mill Creek Entertainment gets those movies into as many places as you can imagine. Mill Creek Entertainment Discs, more than many of their competitors, are in Walmarts and Targets and Best Buys. Uh, they still have that big box store footprint. And so I'm sure that looks really appealing to Disney. So really, it's a great... I don't really see a downside. It's a really nice step forward. And so people are like, well, so what? No new to disc stuff? Well, this is step one. Let's see what happens with step two. Uh, Disney is in the business of making money and anything that's going to put money back into their back into Mickey's pocket is going to make a that's going to create more opportunities. Right. So if this goes well, which I don't see any reason why it wouldn't, that bodes well for the future. So I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what's coming down the road, what's coming down the pike. But I do know that this is great for physical media fans because it means that things that have been out of print and selling for hundreds of dollars are going to be put back on the table at a really fair price and you'll be able, now this is for America, you'll be able to walk into a lot of different places and just pick those up for a very affordable price. Uh, I don't know if Disney has plans to do this outside of America. There's been no announcement that I'm aware of, but I just wanted to address that here in the video because I'm seeing a lot of mixed takes on it. Uh, frankly, some negative takes and I, uh, I don't really see the cause for uh, negativity. I think that this is a really cool opportunity that could bode well. You know, Mill Creek's had a, they've worked with Disney for a long time. Uh, they've had deals with Disney going back for the better part of a decade, if I remember correctly. So this is not new. That partnership's been in place for a long time. I see no reason why it won't continue to be in place for a long time. Um, people complain about DVDs. People complain about Mill Creek Entertainment. Guess what? They're selling more discs than a lot of other people. Those DVDs outsell a lot of the boutique stuff. So money, money talks. Everything else walks. All right, guys, thanks so much for checking out this podcast. Uh, please subscribe. Please rate. Please review. Please leave us kind iTunes reviews. That would go a long way to helping this channel get noticed, this, this podcast getting noticed. Uh, we got more exciting interviews coming down the road. I'm recording one in just a minute. So uh, I'm excited, and I know that you're going to be there for it. So I want to thank you for the time that you spend with me uh, and uh, let you know that I appreciate you. So take care. Until next time, I will catch you later.